What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. everyone. Thank you for tuning into the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. It's August 2018, and you're listening to Episode 86 of Postmodern Realities, and I'm Melanie Cogdill, Managing Editor of the Christian Research Journal. On this episode, I'm joined by Eric C. Redman. Eric is Assistant Professor of Bible at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois, and he also serves as Associate Pastor of Adult Ministries at Calvary Memorial Church in Oak Park, Illinois. In addition, he's the author of the book, Where Are All the Brothers? Straight Answers to Men's Questions About the Church. In the 2017 Volume 40, Number 5 issue of the Christian Research Journal, Eric wrote an effective evangelism article called Reaching African American Men with the Gospel. This uh, column is a practical advice column on how to reach people of other faiths and of no faith with gospel. So, Eric, it's good to have you on. It is so good to be back again, Melanie. Thank you for having me back to the program. Well, last time we talked on, it was episode 63 back in March, we talked about the Black Panther movie in the Marvel series, and that was in theaters. And you wrote a film review for our website, Equip.org. And at the time that I spoke with you, you had only seen the movie twice, but you were telling me that you were going to go see it again. And so since then, how many times have you seen the film and why have you seen it that many times? Well, since the last time you and I talked, I have seen Black Panther an additional six to seven times. I lose count uh, in there, but it's been at least six. And I've watched selected portions many more times. The movie is a timely piece of media with an extremely positive and uplifting portrayal of the lives of of people of color, of people of African descent in particular. And it comes at a period in American history when negative media displays and portrayals of African-American life still tend to dominate the nightly news. Um, As many people have noted, the movie portrays the exaltation of African descent people without achievement coming by means of a sports enterprise or drug dealing or vice culture or other crimes or entertainment or even political or financial corruption. Uh, The images of the king overcoming selfish and culturally imposed limitations in order to benefit people of all nations itself is inspiring to me. Uh, So while watching a movie, I feel like the sports fan who identifies with his professional or college team and feels like the team's win is the fan's win, like the fan made the hit or the goal. I feel like I've just joined T'Challa and Wakanda at the top of the world, having defeated this great evil and having my eyes open to the potential for me to help uplift people of color and all other ethnicities around the world too. Um, The help especially would be for men and young men 
who were portrayed in the movie as being powerless and oppressed among the people of the world. So I love watching this movie over and over again. Well, it's interesting. When you open up your article that you wrote for us last year, you posit that African-American men constitute a largely unreached and overlooked mission field in our country. And, and that can be surprising to some people. So what do you mean by this? And how do you base this perception that this group is largely unreached? Melanie, when I say to people that African-American men are a mission field, I sometimes meet with skepticism. People are prepared to reply to me with poll results that show African-Americans are the most religious people in America with the highest church attendance and belief that the scriptures are the word of God. Uh, Some also want to point me to the number of African-American men they see in their own church. But usually that's churches of upper middle class attendees or it's the new hip hop churches in our community. And and few of those have attendees in the hundreds and or it's churches in which the men to which they are pointing have been in attendance since the civil rights era, meaning they have gray hair and they are not pointing to men born since the 1980s. But these responses are considering very limited perspectives and are not considering African-American men as a whole, including many who live with unemployment and despair or are daily visible congregating in places of urban despair and blight. It also does not consider younger men who have left their parents and their grandparents' religion for atheism or for Eastern religion. It's not uncommon to find an African-American Buddhist now, or they've left it for personal spirituality or Islam. And those responses also are not looking at an evident lack of discipleship in our community in which the faith should be passed on to generations below us in in great numbers, Uh, a faith that I say should and would pull our community away from having negative social indicators related to the family, to wealth and housing, and to education. You know, that's really interesting. I was just reading an article in the New York Times, I think in the last week or so, and it was kind of an essay about a younger African-American guy who for the first time went back to church. And it was kind of because he identified, I mean, we're not going to be talking about this, but he identified as LGBTQ and he had just left the church. And then what did it take to get him back even into a church at all? Um, where he was living in New York City. So I think that is interesting because he specifically talked about, you know, leaving the church that he grew up in. Well, you point to social indicators as, you know, like signposts indicating the need for evangelism um, among African-American men. And there was a recent report uh, about black men in America. And, you know, that report concludes that African-American men are making economic gains in the country. So, and you did talk about how many more upper middle class are in church um, versus other groups of African-American men. So what what do you make of this particular report and other studies um, in terms of spiritual needs among African-American men? You know, when reports like the one to which you referred come out on Black men in America, are evident out in social media or on the news, Uh, my chest does uh, stick out and I'm happy to hear about strides and and gains. Uh, Sometimes if we read those reports uh, more closely than just the portion they portray in the news media or on social media, uh, we can see that the gains for African-American men still lag far behind the achievements of the majority culture and also of uh, Asian Americans. Uh, 
Uh, and there are other studies that also would suggest that African-American children raised in middle-class homes will not fare as well as their majority culture counterparts, even where the income levels or the opportunity, uh, educational opportunity levels are equal. But spiritually speaking, the educational gains and economic gains that we see among many African-Americans and African-American men mask a loss of the concept of the need for a whole family, whole family in the traditional sense, to bow before the Lord in your living. And here's what I mean by that. A simple statistic uh, that is easily verifiable reveals this. That is, over 70% of all African-American children are born into a single parent home. And again, you can get those, uh, you can verify those statistics. Our readers could do that. Um, This, for me, is a breakdown of the family. It's a, a breakdown of morality. It's a breakdown of group responsibility, the sort of group responsibility that characterized African-Americans since the period of slavery, uh, when we were largely a church-going people. Um, And that group responsibility is also known as love. So this, to me, reveals that we're not reproducing men who will lead married households because they understand that God prescribed marriage for sex and children to be the product of that. We're, we're not reproducing men who will fear the Lord in their sexual morality and not take advantage of women and men who will be concerned about the welfare of others above themselves and who will raise their children and their families in the fear of the Lord. If that does not constitute a mission field, and that 70% statistic does not constitute one, it certainly constitutes a field desperately in need of a deeper explanation of the gospel and its implications. I want to talk more specifically about the article that you wrote for us in our Effective Evangelism column. And, you know, you said in your experience that you have had conversations with other, for example, Anglo white American um, Christians who have told you that they find uh, they have an inability to find points of commonality to even start a discussion with an unbelieving African American man. So, what do you think accounts for this, you know? lack of like common talking points? And what would you say to someone who feels like that? They feel really ill-equipped to even start that kind of conversation with an unbelieving African-American man. Hmm, That's a great question, Melanie. Um, It's evident by and large that African-Americans and majority culture Anglo-Americans still live in two separate worlds. Uh, This is true on Sunday mornings, uh, and it's true in terms of residential geographics and leisurely activities. Um, and if I could just say on a more personal note, we at, at our church recently, we've been looking at these issues, and I tend right now a predominantly uh, white, multicultural congregation. And we're realizing that um, even in our congregation, many of us just live in, in separate worlds in our, in our leisure time and even in our where we live uh, in our neighborhoods. Um, yeah, there are many of us living besides one another now in middle income communities and working the same jobs at whatever class level. But what happens after work ends? In what ways are we then experiencing one another's lives and, and experiencing them on the weekends? What are our, our children doing, students, when school is out for the summer? Um, while African-Americans are forced to enter the world of the majority uh, culture for, for many reasons, 
And the majority culture can choose to live separately when the workday is done and the school year is finished. And we were finding this by reading shared, a, a particularly shared book together. Um, without intentionality, many people in the majority culture have no means of entering the lives of African-Americans and vice versa. So what I say to such people is be intentional about joining in leisurely activities in striking a friendship on your children's ball fields and in their ballet studios and in the after-school parental involvement events. Work on building one relationship across a race line and then open your home to that person or to his or her family and be willing to receive an invitation to that, that person's home because home is where we relax and we expose who uh, we are and how we have a shared common humanity. Uh, offer nothing but friendship, just like you would do to someone of your own uh, race or culture. Don't offer any advice or discourse on race and why there's not a race problem or why you do not have a problem with race. Just listen. And if you listen, you'll learn much that will help you enter into the lives of, of many others. So I tend to say something like that. I think that's a good word. I mean, for, especially for myself, I now live in the South and I used to, in North Carolina where CRI is located, and I used to live in California, which is very multicultural. And now I'm in a situation, especially the neighborhood that I'm living in, the church that I go to and the school that my kids go to where it is, I'm Asian American and it's majority, you know, basically white people. I mean, I there's just not that many people of any other races within my spheres very much. And so it will does take intentionality for me. And one thing that my oldest son, who's now in college, noticed, especially, this might be true in specific areas of the country, right? That here, you know, if you have Asian friends, all the Asian people stay together or, you know, those kinds of things. So you have to be very, you know, intentional. And that was something that he was looking for specifically when he went to college was not to be, to have just a more diverse situation than he had been in growing up. part of his years growing up in North Carolina. You're listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. Today's guest is Eric C. Redman. And in 2017, in our Volume 40, Number 5 issue of the Christian Research Journal, Eric wrote an effective evangelism article, and it's called Reaching African-American Men with the Gospel. And you can read it free online on our website, equip.org. And to read articles in our upcoming Volume 41, Number 4 issue of the journal, you'll want to subscribe because you won't want to miss out on our cover article about how pro-life and pro-choice adherents can have a civil dialogue and our evaluation of HBO's Westworld and our article on answering the person who used to believe in Christianity and who has rejected it. Another very interesting article. So a six-issue subscription is now at a new lower price of $33.50. And to subscribe online, please go to equip.org. One thing that sometimes we don't um, always think about as Christians is just the doctrine of Imago Dei, that all people, you know, are created in the image of God. And sometimes we just don't consciously think about how we can recognize the common humanity and the image of God that every single solitary person has, regardless of their race or their position in society. And you would think that would be true for um, believers, but you know, language use is not common always across all cultures. Do you think it's possible that we create, or maybe do we fail to recognize like language barriers when we share the gospel across cultures? If you can just kind of unpack that for us. I do think that, Melanie. I think 
typical evangelical church language is professionally theological and precise because it acts as a litmus test for evangelical piety and spirituality. Uh, that is, uh, you're one of us if you have the right language. However, anyone can use such language without growing toward Christian maturity. There is so much, and forgive me for saying this, my horse is as big as your theological horse that takes place in evangelical arenas in which one has to prove he or she knows the lingo or you can't participate in our church. But in the traditional African-American church, such lingo would be considered stuffy and arrogant, even though we have our own lingo. And that same language would be unknown to the non-religious African-American. And what I mean by that is this, while a term like Calvinism might be known among unbelieving white Americans. A few non-religious African-Americans would have any association with John Calvin or election, um, except through a really savvy discussion of the last Avengers movie. Um, and, and certainly you understand what I mean by that. Uh, I think we need to keep theological language simple when we're trying to share uh, the gospel, because gospel language, simple gospel language is universal. And so what we need to do is say to someone in need, can I tell you the story of the good news Jesus came to bring and, and to work hard at lowering the use of the common theological language we use among ourselves and our congregations? That's so true. I think Christians can fall into a habit of just kind of using different terms that we assume everyone knows about. In the article you talk about, and you mentioned this a few minutes ago, just befriending an African-American man before, you know, not taking him on as a project or anyone who's a non-believer for that matter as a uh, project, you know, to share this gospel specifically um, with that as the only goal. And you say that's extremely significant to witnessing effectively, Tim, just being a friend. So why is befriending an African-American so important to having a just an effective uh, biblical gospel witness? Melanie, no one likes to be objectified. Uh, the Me Too movement is great evidence of this. Women in the entertainment world and world over have put their foot down and said, you will not objectify me as a tool for your perverted sexual pleasure or your need to display your social and gender impotence. And whether we agree with the movement or not, and I don't have a say on that uh, uh, either way here, that's not my point here. That is what is being portrayed by the move movement. Uh, we cannot be objectified as a tool. Every person wants an opportunity to display the unique you rather than being classified as a thing that fits a preconceived mold. That is where such molds are not intrinsically germane by the creator's design. I don't want you to objectify me because of my place of employment or worship, which people often do. They hear where I work, they say, oh, you must be, or they see where I go to worship. Oh, that means that you are. I want you to relate to the real me once you've sat down and talked to me and figured out who I am. Even though the mission field of African-American men exists, if we think of such men as objects, of evangelism first, or projects, as you said, we will miss the richness of the individual person, some of whom will respond to the gospel and some of whom will not. But if a man senses he's being objectified rather than simply welcomed, he will be turned off to the gospel of the objectifier. 
And he might even read it as more of the same objectifying that brings the quote unquote unidentified black male suspect into our homes via the nightly news each day. So befriending and letting someone know you're just interested in in him is very important, much more important than seeing someone as the next project. You were talking about theological language and it's not being common across all cultures. And um, when you're talking about apologetics that accompanies evangelism towards African-American men, um, it seems to me that you're saying that it needs to be culturally based rather than doctrinally based, like you were saying in your example. And is this true? And if it is, do you think we're prioritizing culture over doctrine and then watering down or changing the message of the gospel by doing that? Hmm. Yeah, we, we need to be culturally wise toward the average African-American experience in America, I say, if we're going to share the gospel with wisdom. We, and when I say we here, I mean African-Americans, we tend to be a skeptical people because we have been harmed and misused by so many. Um, anyone who begins sharing the gospel with an African-American man and invites him to church without understanding the skeptical eye we cast toward the integrity of pastors might be working against his or her own witnessing opportunity. But being aware of such cultural factors is not watering down the gospel. Uh, it would be watering down the gospel if we made those things the gospel rather than proclaiming the death and resurrection of Christ alone for salvation by faith. But we are to be a people who live as wise, not unwise, says the Apostle Paul. So just like missionaries to foreign lands do their cultural anthropology before trying to reach people with the gospel, so too one should understand African-American culture when trying to reach African-Americans with the gospel. It's just being sensitive and wise. Well, I just want to give you kind of like a scenario just to just to find out how you could um, practically help us out um, with this subject. And that's, okay, pretend that Jesus gave you just this wide open opportunity to design any kind of evangelism effort to African-American churches all across the country. What would be some things that you would want to be part of some kind of effort like that? What would be some really essential things? Wow, a blank check. I have to think about uh, that. I have some ideas here. Let me I'll run through a few of them. First, I would want to see American evangelicals of all ethnicities and denominations, and by denominations, I include those who are non-denominational, gather together and determine that this mission field, African-American men, will become a priority in terms of prayer and partnerships and church planting efforts over the next 30 years, that is for a generation and a half, because it'll take that long for churches to get traction and to continue to go with missions efforts, just like we did coming out of World War II and going to uh, foreign lands. Uh, that's the minimum effort it'll take to move toward revival life efforts in reaching African-American men and young men. A uh, second, I would challenge younger African-Americans to give their lives to ministry and missions and not simply toward STEM, that is science, technology, engineering, and math. You know, there's a big movement in the African-American community to push people into STEM jobs, which is understandable. We're pushing people in general uh, to that. But you can also hear it 
uh, in our meeting post, otherwise known as the church in the African-American community. Um, I would also say, hey, we need to challenge our young men and our young women to give their lives to ministry and mission. So when they ask why there's this parallel effort to the STEM push, does this ministry push, we would get to raise awareness of the spiritual needs in our community. I would ask local churches to place an emphasis on personal evangelism and apologetics, finding one tool through which one's entire congregation can train and be trained annually. We've kind of lost this emphasis in in modern churches, but just have something. Everyone gets trained on this. We revisit it because evangelism is a priority. And I would challenge majority culture, Anglo culture churches to challenge their own members to learn as much as possible about African-American life from fellow African-American believers, and then join such believers in praying for and sharing the gospel with unbelieving African-Americans as often as possible. Well, of course, you know, just to kind of wrap up, you know, we've been talking about just the desire to see, you know, Christ transform the lives of African-American men. But by this focus on men, do you think that that leaves you open to the charge of what about African-American women and evangelistic efforts? Uh, I certainly think that the gospel is for everyone, Melanie, and I am not trying to slight efforts toward African-American women or slight African-American women themselves at, at all. I just understand that um, if we reach uh, men in African-American community, uh, we, are, we are going after a much harder work uh, it's more conjecture than actual statistics, but typically African-American churches have far more women in them. And historically, African-American women have filled up um, our pews. It doesn't mean that many African-American women are without the gospel. It just means it's so evident that there are so many more African-American men with without it. I want men to be reached, men who can then respond and help guide young men and also be models for for girls too who will help reduce the statistic that says you know we have children being born into homes that don't have uh two parents largely the parent missing is a, a man in there because the woman is caring for a child so i don't want to overlook african-american women and please if you meet an african-american woman and you're a listener here uh, and she's an unbeliever, share the gospel with her by all means. All I'm saying is I think that we need to redouble our efforts to go after African-American men, men that you know we have been afraid of or maybe have assumed that they're, they're going to church or just don't want to be involved in our lives. We need to go past all that, those concepts and say, this is extremely important, um, this mission field, and we're going to make it a priority. Well, this certainly gives us a lot of food for thought, so I appreciate you coming on. So finally, I want to end with some fun rapid-fire questions for you. Well, it's summertime, so would you rather have a smoothie, ice cream, or frozen yogurt? Ice cream, chocolate. Are you an introvert or extrovert? 
I am an introvert when it comes to my free time, but because I have to be a public figure, I'm forced to be an extrovert and I'm married to an intra extrovert. <laughs> <laughs> Are you an early bird or a night owl? Melanie, I have to tell you something funny. I didn't even know there was a such thing as a night owl until I got married. In my house, it's just mom and dad, me and my brother. Everyone was up by 5 a.m., 6 a.m. at the latest because my parents had to be to work. And uh, my wife loves to tell the story that on our honeymoon, on the first day, I woke up early in the morning and said, come on, honey, let's go. And she said, why are we up so early? I had no idea that there were night people. So I remain a very early riser to this day, some 27 years later in our marriage. Yes, I'm also just like that, very early. Well, you live in the Chicago area, so if our listeners go and visit Chicago, there's a few more weeks left of summer, what's one must thing uh, to do that they need to see or they should not miss in the Chicago area? Many of our festivals are, are passing by uh, already, but they should go to Navy Pier and see the huge Ferris wheel at Navy Pier and eat uh, some great Chicago barbecue and Chicago donuts while they're here. Oh, I'm surprised you didn't say deep dish pizza. Okay, I didn't know there was good Chicago donuts and barbecue. Well, that sounds good. Well, thanks, Eric, for being a guest on our Postmodern Realities podcast. Thank you, Melanie, for having us again. May your tribe increase. Thank you so much, too, to CRI for all the support that they give uh, to a Christian witness in our ethnic minority communities. Well, today's guest is Eric C. Redmond in 2017, Volume 40, Number 5, Issue of the Christian Research Journal. Eric wrote an effective evangelism article, which is called Reaching African American Men with the Gospel, which you can read free online at our website, equip.org. So please subscribe to the journal. A six-issue subscription is now at a new lower price of $33.50. And to subscribe online, visit equip.org. We'd like to hear from you, so connect with us on social media, like the Bible Answer Man Facebook page, and follow CRI Christian Research Journal. Hank Hanegraaff, and The Bible Answer Man on Twitter. Follow The Bible Answer Man on Instagram, and please subscribe to The Bible Answer Man channel on YouTube. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the Postmodern Realities podcast on iTunes. And when you rate and review our podcast, it helps others to find our content. So please share this episode on your social media accounts. Be sure you tune in daily to the Bible Answer Man broadcast hosted by CRI President Hank Hanegraaff, who answers your questions live on air. To ask Hank a question, call 888-ASK-HANK, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. In addition, head to iTunes and subscribe to Hank Unplugged. It's Hank's new audio podcast. You'll follow Hank off the grid, where he has in-depth conversations with some of the brightest minds discussing topics you care about. So until our next Christian Research Journal author conversation, thanks for listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast. Podcast.